0: Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinergogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein the Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks for tuning in for an hour of science. We've got some really cool stuff coming up in uh, this particular show. I should uh, first of all introduce our team, though. I've got Dr. Lyndon on the line. Good morning, madam. How are you feeling?
1: Not too bad, thanks, Dr. Shane. Not quite well enough to be in the studio with you today, but pretty pretty happy with this last uh, burst of Early
0: autumn weather. Yeah, a couple of days of it. Good morning, Dr. Ray. You're online too. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Well,
2: I'm, I'm, well, you know, social distancing means I can't be in the studio, but I also have been enjoying the fantastic weather. Walked home after dinner last night. It was just lovely. Yep.
0: Um, couple- really nice weather couple of nice uh, days for the last few days of April. And Dr. Laura is actually in the studio with me. It's a bit freaky. How are you going, madam?
3: Very exciting to be in the studio with you, Shane. Like, you, I've missed this place. Do you remember what to do? Um, not bang the microphone, <laughs> but it feels great. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's, good to ha- it's good to have you in the studio. It's nice to have company. And we also have some guests coming into the, into the studio. They're in the green room right now, folks. We'll be chatting to them a little bit later, and then we'll be speaking to the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University, Professor John Dewar, a bit later in the show as well. But let's start with some news. Lyndon, I know you're not feeling the best, so we'll put you out of your misery first. What have you got for us? <laughs>
1: Well, Dr. Shane, I'm not feeling that great, but I have managed to find enough energy this morning to do a lot of Googling about the heights of buildings in Melbourne and the areas of our parks. What do you think I have been researching about this week?
0: The heights of buildings in the areas of our parks. Yeah. I don't know. Um, heat islands. Birds Ooh,
3: crashing that's into a buildings. Good guess. Um, almost. What was that, Laura? Birds crashing into buildings.
1: <laughs> that's crashing into buildings no although i i would definitely read that study no not quite heat islands in fact i'm going the other way i've been looking into a paper about glaciers mm.
4: i'll
1: get there they can just i'll get there with the connection so this was a paper that was published in nature just a few days ago that is the most comprehensive analysis yet of the rates of decline of our glaciers all around the world. So this this paper done by a bunch of researchers in the Northern Hemisphere looked at all of the glaciers, not the ice sheets in the Arctic or the Antarctic, but the glaciers, those rivers of frozen ice that exist around around many mountain ranges. As you would expect, um, the results are pretty bleak. We are seeing a decrease in the amount of uh, ice It's held in our glaciers. But this study is the most accurate one that's been done to date. And it used over, I think it was 200 terabytes of images from satellites over the last 20 years. And the method that this paper used is different to ones that have been done in the past where uh, the size of glaciers have been estimated using, um, what's the word? I think it's um, gravimetry. Using small deviations in gravity measurements that are taken by satellites but this study is using satellite images so stereo satellite images where one satellite image is kind of uh, cross calibrated with another one so you can get a 3d picture of how these um how these glaciers are changing now there are lots of numbers in this paper and i'm not very good spatially with areas which is why i was spent most of this morning asking the internet how tall is this building and how big is this park because this paper has found that over the last 20 years we have lost 267 gigatons of ice per year from our glaciers so this is over uh responsible for about 20% of the sea level rise that we've seen over the last two decades and For those who are with me and don't quite understand how big that is, so a gigaton, a gigaton is a billion tons, right? So 267 gigatons of ice per year. One gigaton would be if you got the Eureka Sky, the Eureka Tower, the very top, plus the goalpost that you see on the Baltic Bridge when you cross the Baltic. So 440 meters of ice. And it covered
3: the whole of Albert Park. That is one And that's one. Gigatons. I'm so glad you broke that's that one. down, Lyndon, because I cannot visualise yeah. that. Mm. <laughs> I so can what? now. So 200,
1: 267 gigatons would be about the height of the Balty Bridge goalposts over all of Port Phillip Bay.
0: Nasty. Yeah,
1: Serious. That's one year. That, that's one year worth of ice that's been lost from these glaciers. And this paper has also found that the rate of of decrease is accelerating, so we're losing more ice per year, particularly in places like New Zealand where the last five years the glaciers are shrinking seven times faster than they were uh, at the start of the 2000s. So depressing work but really an Mm. important study, really useful to have that uncertainty kind of minimised and minimised because this is a really Sea level rises devastating and glaciers are a really important source of fresh water for lots and lots of communities. And now I know uh, how big Albert Park is as well.
0: There you go. Thank you, Dr. Linden. Dr. Laura, what have you got for us?
3: Well, I'm staying on the same theme of devastating events that have been published in huge journals this week. So two landmark studies came out in science which were looking at the um, long-term genetic changes that have been associated with the Chernobyl disaster. Mm. So. I don't know like how familiar everyone is with Chernobyl. I don't know who tuned in to the HBO documentary. Like, did you watch that series yeah, a couple of years yeah, ago? Yeah, it, it was, was interesting. Like, it was so interesting. Freaky but interesting. Freaky, scary, really happened. So Chernobyl um, occurred in 1986 in the former Soviet Union. It's where they it's the most catastrophic nuclear disaster sort of ever time where this huge amount of radiation got released into the environment. Well, actually, so catastrophic, yes, but there was actually a relatively small number of deaths that have been associated with Chernobyl. Mm. UN 2005 report said it was about 50, but about 4,000 people eventually would succumb to um, sort of devastating health effects, from particularly um, from cancer, and particularly from thyroid cancer. So just to give you some stats of what happened after Chernobyl... 200,000 people were relocated, 800,000 people were affected by radiation. There was more than 5,000 cases of thyroid cancer direct just within like just a small number of years after Chernobyl. And of course the reason why you would get cancer after radiation is because radiation causes damage to DNA, um, that leads to cancer, and why thyroid cancer in particular is because of the radioactive iodine that was re- which was released from the reactor, and did you know that thyroid, the thyroid cells are the only cells in the body that can absorb radioactive iodine, or iodine in general, and um, in particular children's thyroids who are very, very active. Um, absorbed the most and so this is why there was a really high incidence particularly in childhood thyroid cancers. Okay and I actually learned a couple of interesting facts before I discuss the papers which I just must tell you. One of the major um, sort of sources of um, getting radiation in the population around uh, the city of Chernobyl was actually from um, local cows who were used to make pasteurized milk so apparently there were really high quantities of iodine in the milk. Mm. Now so with relation to the the cancers that you're getting, of course, there was a huge impact on um, genetic mutations in the wildlife around Chernobyl. So within many, um, many years just after Chernobyl, there were several animals born with defects. But now it's actually quite buzzing with wildlife. And you may have heard, you know, quite famous of the wolves of Chernobyl and the dogs of Chernobyl. And, you know, that that city and the abandoned towns are now quite like you can go as a tourist and visit, even though there is kind of residual um, radioactivity in um, the environment so what about the people who lived through the disaster because you know it was a huge cleanup operation There were reported to be 600,000 liquidators who are people who are involved in the cleanup and that's really high numbers and so what happens to these people and what happens to the children of these people and that's where um, sort of the first study comes in so this is like a 35 year whereby the mutations that were required during Chernobyl at high mutation rate because of all the um, sort of of radioactivity which these people live through, would that be passed down to their children? And so this was one of the major questions. And it's been a major question such that people actually who lived through Chernobyl were actually scared to have children at the time because they were worried that hereditary mutations would be passed down to their children. So um, in the study, they um, used next-generation DNA sequencing. Um, the way we can sequence the genome now is pretty pretty new, we can do it in big quantities. And so 130 children born between 1987, the year after Chernobyl, and and 2002, and their parents and one of or both of the parents had been liquidators who were involved in the cleanup operation, they looked at the inherited um, mutations in these children compared to the general population. And what they found is that there was actually minimal um, impact of mutations being passed down. So there wasn't an increased mutation rate that was naturally acquired in the children of people who'd worked through Chernobyl and worked in that clean operation compared to those in the general population. So... The big deal about this is, is of course, recent. More recently, um, there was a similar nuclear accident in Japan in Fukushima in 2011. So this gives information to you know the effect of radiation in passing down to our next generation. It's kind of thought that yes, the the, the risk is low to your children. Study number two was looking, um, which was co-published with this other study, was um, again using next-generation DNA sequencing to profile genetic mutations in 359 people who developed childhood thyroid cancer. Um, now, most of these thyroid cancers that you know were occurring, as I said, it was more than 5,000 children, more than 5,000 people, mostly children. They were actually cured, but at the time, and this was the immense foresight of the scientists at the time, they actually made what was called the Chernobyl tissue bank. And so, decades ago, they took sections of these tumors. They didn't, we didn't have the technology of gene- genetic sequencing at the time, but um, they banked all these samples. And now the technology has been developed, so we can sequence these tumors. And what the scientists were looking for was to compare the types of mutations and the types of drivers of thyroid cancers to those cancers that arise in our general population. And essentially, what they found is that there was no demon radiation cancer. There was essentially no differences between thyroid cancers caused by Chernobyl radiation and thyroid cancers that um, are generally within our sort of population. So what this shows us is that the treatment should generally be the same between radiation-induced cancers and sort of naturally acquired by mutation thyroid cancers. Mm. And I love the fact that it just you know comes together the technology that now we have you know waiting for that technology, banking all the samples you know several decades ago, and really giving answers you know scientifically as we can now to yeah. these huge events.
0: Importance of long-term research, eh, Dr. Ray. Right. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us there?
2: Oh, just a quick observation. I didn't know it was a thing, which is why it caught me, was that um, equids, so feral horses and donkey, did you know they dig wells up to almost two meters? Uh, I didn't know that was a thing. I know elephants dig holes, but they can dig wells by digging into sandy soil, and the groundwater can come up. And there was a study from uh, researchers in Arizona and Denmark looking at how in the Sonoran Desert, groundwater-fed um, Availability changed by introduced horses and donkeys, which are feral equids. Right. Uh, and what they found right. was. Wait, I've got to that,
3: ask you is it the horses or the donkeys who were digging the biggest holes?
2: Uh, you know, they did not, they just kind of looped them together as wild horses and donkeys. Just, I always like to think just of the hole digging donkey. Set. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could understand that difference. Well, feral horses aren't always as big as, you know, the really well-fed ones. But uh, this isn't a dry region. But what they found was the water availability from the holes that the donkeys dug was something like 25 to 50% of the water availability because the distance between streams is a cup of 7 to 30 kilometers. And this really affected the vertebrate uh, richness, the number of vertebrates that were able to access things and really affects dry dry land ecosystems just by having these donkeys and horses digging digging wells um it affected vegetation there was a lot of flood vegetation that would spring up around these holes as well uh, and their results suggest that these introduced feral uh or or or, or, or local uh or introduced or feral animals are able to buffer water availability and as temperatures get warmer this type of a resilience from a human-caused aridification could even become more important so, your well digging donkeys are actually helping the other animals. I just thought that was cute.
0: It's very cool stuff, <laughs> uh, Dr. A. Thanks so much for that. Uh, folks, we're going to say goodbye to the rest of the, the panel now that they're online. Dr. Linda and Dr. A., thanks so much for being uh, on the show today. We are now going to go to some music. And when we we'll be back, we'll have our first two guests uh, in the studio for the year, which is pretty exciting. So, hang in there, folks. We'll be back in just a moment.
5: You're
1: listening to a Triple R podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen hit up the triple r website or your favorite podcast platform
0: Uh, welcome back everybody you are listening to triple r in the studio with us now is dr valentina lorenzetti and adam clemente they are both from the healthy brain and mind research center at the australian catholic university valentina welcome to the studio thank you it's great to see you and adam thanks so much for coming in as well
6: thanks dr shane for having me
0: uh, you guys are our first guests in the studio <laughs> in over a year i kind of didn't know what to do with you when you turned up at the station it was a bit weird i hope it didn't feel weird for you guys
6: no, it wasn't no nice it's back. been great it's it's super exciting,
0: <laughs> exciting. <laughs> it's like riding the bike uh now you're yeah. working on some really interesting stuff which relates to the use of cannabis and i suppose in particular um, scenarios where people have what, what is termed a cannabis disorder um, Valentina, I might start with you Because uh, most of this is going to be about him Because um, he's one doing a lot of the work But you're, you're the director of, of that particular part Of uh, the Australian Catholic University What do we mean by um, uh, cannabis disorder? How do we define that?
4: Well, there, is, um, there are a number of criteria that people have to uh, meet. So there's a list of about um, 11 symptoms, mm-hmm. whereby if you meet more of these symptoms, the more symptoms you endorse, the more disorder um, you use would be. So for example, uh, someone who uses cannabis recreationally just for fun and can quit whenever and doesn't experience any adverse issues in relation to it, mm-hmm. then they, these people would not have disorder use. Right. And uh, the vast majority of people who use cannabis uh, recreationally, they wouldn't necessarily endorse any disorders. Yep. But we would have about 30% of those people who use cannabis then they would have some issues in relation to it. So they wouldn't include things such as feeling urges and wanting to use and not being able to uh, refrain from smoking or mm. feeling the urge of smoking cannabis to the point that you, you wouldn't need to smoke cannabis before driving and maybe picking up your kids to school right. or driving a, or... Um, operating machineries at work mm. while being high and this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Um, mm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So quite a bit. So Adam, in terms of looking at, uh, I suppose, the, 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 the health effects and so forth of that, I mean, how do you go about that? I mean, I know you guys have been using MRI scans. I mean, I assume these are functional MRI scans, yeah? So yep. tell, tell us about that.
6: Yeah. So essentially at the moment, um, we know that, with, um, that brain function underpins many of the of the deficits or the symptoms seen in Uh, substance use disorders Mm -hmm. however there is this gap between i guess clinical use or clinically driven um, treatments based on this Um, so that's why when we when we do this research we try and incorporate these uh, these type of metrics so we use functional mri um, and this with this type of measure we get these proxies of brain function so we can look at the oxygen levels of the brain um, which is uh, i guess suggestive of um, brain function and I guess when you target this with interventions, so interventions, uh, they're and we see that they may relate to a certain uh, functions of the brain, it can lead to this kind of targeted intervention potentially showing improvements.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine exactly how this works with the functional MRI. So, have you got a whole lot of grad students down there who you, you give a whole lot of pot to and they just smoke it up and then shove them in the MRI machine? Or how about how do you do this research and monitor that sort of brain changes?
6: Uh,
4: Well, what we know know is that when people are addicted or use substances on a regular Mm. basis, and that's the same for, you know, driving a bike rather than learning, using a lot of sugar, the same thing, some brain changes occur over time. And so that it becomes a habit. So you need more of something in order to feel the same level of reward. And without that, a lot of people wouldn't be using any substances, really. Mm. So reward is a big deal out of it. So what we see when we... um, Take an MRI scan. We, in our specific studies people are not intoxicated. We want to see their brain function when they are functioning, for example, in the day-to-day while, mm-hmm. while they're not high. So yep. we ask people to refrain from smoking for about 12 hours so that they're not acutely high. Uh, and then we get them to do a number of computer tasks and some of them in, while inside the scanner. So they will look at a lot of pictures about bongs, cones, and a lot of, you know, grass of high grade and low grade and whatnot. And we really, we often see that their, their brain networks really um, start increasing in function because they, there's a learned association between right. the substance and reward. It's like looking uh sugar or thinking about a holiday, and then you, you know, oftentimes people smile uh, when thinking about a, a reward that is about to come. Yeah, yeah, of course. And Valentina, who are you recruiting into the study? Is it people who uh, self
3: confessed, you know, I have a disorder? you know, they go to that, how do they sign up for, you know, to be a part of your study?
4: So usually we recruit people uh, who use regularly, let's say most days or every second day for a, uh, about 12 months. And if people, and then we would ask them a number of questions that will make us understand whether they um, they have a cannabis disorder or not. Yeah, whether they, where they place
3: in the spectrum. And, and- You have sort of like just, you know, control people from your lab to get in the machine as well to say, and they don't see, have the same, you know, they're they're not triggered to have that reward when they get in the MRI. Is that what you're saying
4: yeah yeah we also of course have people who don't use cannabis but they need to be matched to people who use cannabis in terms of education at level of iq Mm. um a number of other things to make sure that the group differences that we see are due to cannabis or we at least we have a greater degree of precision to say that the any group differences are related to cannabis have
0: have you and and i'll throw this one to you adam but have you looked at people who are in the scenario where they're using it for clinical practice for dealing with chronic pain and And I can imagine, you know, just as there's an association with, oh, this is something I enjoy and so forth, as Valentina suggested, I mean, with chronic pain, that must be an even stronger signal where it would be associated with a reduction of, you know, terrifying days of of discomfort. Have have you looked at that and how does that sort of factor into these studies?
6: Yes, so we don't necessarily um, look at uh, all use of chronic pain. Um, This is more just, uh, I guess, Um, just everyday use Mm. and but these are things to keep in mind particularly with um cannabis use moving towards this in society um yeah so it's something that we 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 are kind of just testing these uh, uh group differences at this point in time um and how potential uh interventions may mitigate these uh i guess um Urges or cravings or withdrawal yeah. symptoms that these uh, these people may face because we are and, and going back to uh, to Dr Laura's question we 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 also look for um, people who have attempted to quit in the past um, actually are showing um, symptoms of this because there are some people who don't necessarily show um, symptoms of cannabis use disorder um, so we we're trying to target people who may actually uh, be have attempted to overcome uh, their use in the past. Us to overcome mm. some symptoms um and yeah seeing how potential interventions may mitigate this yeah
0: so. now just before we go yeah. is is this sort of deficit that people are seeing in terms of their cognitive performance is it increasing with time or does it kind of plateau with use have you got any feel for i mean i know this is a ongoing study but do you have a feel for that at this point like for people who've been doing this for 10 years are they that much worse off than someone for five or one
4: well, there's always individual variability, of mm. course. So there might be people who have been using for 20 years and did copied really well. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's people who have been smoking for one year and they've actually you know, started to experience independence. So there is always individual variability, but we can see that people who are more chronic users over time, they tend to show a bit more cognitive deficits. Um, but also you asked something very interesting about the non-medical use and medical mm. use. The line there is very blurred. A lot of people uh, self-report using for medical purposes even if the doctor hasn't prescribed it or to go to sleep at night but then it's hard to know when you take cannabis to go to sleep at night because cannabis helps you with that or whether you end up needing cannabis to go to sleep at night because then you're going to feel craving and energies and you can't go to bed anymore
0: mm, yeah look it's it's a very interesting topic and i think it's one of those things that this has been in use for what, thousands of years mm-hmm. and all of a sudden now you know we're seeing a whole industry um, being set up around it which is the sort of medical industry but there's also the the rest of the use um i don't think any triple r um, listeners use cannabis that would be my guess presumably knowing. not, presumably not <laughs> um with the exception well no, with the exception of a couple of thousand. yeah, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> um, of course they do. Um, it's it's widespread, but look, it's good that you guys are looking into it. Thanks so much for coming yeah. in. Thanks for being our first guest today cool. on on the show. It's been really great uh, cool. having people in yeah, the studio.
6: Thank you. And could I just say, if, if anyone is listening and thinks um, they might be eligible for the study, you can send us a text on zero four nine zero three nine one three four two, or send an email at cannabis at acu.edu.au au, and we will um, be in contact with you and uh, yeah. To see if you're eligible for the study. So, thank you. Thanks Fantastic. For having us.
0: Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Valentina. It's great to have you in the studio, and uh, good luck with that ongoing work.
4: Thanks for having us. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein Gogo on Three Triple R. We believe that on the line now we do have Professor John Dewar, the Vice Chancellor of La Trobe University. I think he's just he's just managed to scrape in a
5: seconds before we came back live. Hey, John, how are you going? I'm good. You, you know sometimes your laptop just decides to take forever to boot up. I, I'm afraid I've just had one of those mornings. Anyway, I'm here. I'm saying I'm here. And that's okay. Now,
0: first of all, congratulations on your new role that you've, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you just do this like on your Thursday afternoon or something, but you've taken, in addition to being the Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe, you've taken on the role as Chair of Universities Australia. Tell us a bit about that. What's What, what does that mean?
5: Well, Universities Australia is the peak body for Australia's universities. So every university is a member represented by their vice chancellor. Um, It was set up in 2004 as a successor to what used to be the Australian Vice Chancellor's Committee. And really what it does is represent uh, the interests of the sector to government in particular, um, but also coordinates on things where it makes sense for the sector to act through a single agent. So, for example, things like dealing with copyright. Um, UA does a huge amount of work on things like that. Not not very uh, visible, but very important that uh, it enables the university sector to speak with one voice. The role of chair, um, well, technically you're chairing the board of UA because it's a company, um, but you're also, in a sense, a spokesperson for Universities Australia um, when it comes to commentary on um on government policy or reactions to what's going on in the world of higher education. there's also a CEO Katrina Jackson who's exceptionally good and she does a great job also of speaking for the sector. so it, it's 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 not a full-time job, Shane, I yep. assure you um, uh, but it is it is uh, it is an important one, particularly at this time as the sector's you know going through, uh, a pretty tough time.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you a bit about that. But first of all, good luck with. Um, you know, vice chancellors are so they're also easy going, and they just all get in line, and you're not going to have any problem at all uh, corralling them into into you know walking in one direction. So have fun with that, John.
5: Um, <laughs> they're, they're 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 independently minded, Shane. So I suspect a lot of my time will be spent talking to my colleagues yeah. about various yeah i'll yeah. I'll send you a um
0: a cattle prod in the mail so you just use that but um let's let's talk a bit about the sector because I think this is where a lot of people um are hearing various things at the moment um there's a lot of concerns around there's been a lot of staff losses um from various yeah. institutions I know there are some institutions who are looking more and more at Things like you know the, the proportion of level A's that are you know available at certain institutions, and that, that of course dis, disproportionately affects um, some some people are, you know some groups over others. I mean, can you give us a bit of a rundown? How are things going? How bad is it? Is it what we're reading in the media? And, and what's the future look like?
5: Well, the, so how, how bad is it? First of all, um, the the answer to that is it's pretty bad. Um, the the sector will lose by the end of this year billions of dollars of revenue. There's there's no doubt about that. Um, the impact on individual universities seems very varied. Um, we're going we're starting to receive the financial statements for universities for last year, um, and your listeners may have read reports of, you know, the ANU uh, uh, finishing last year with a massive deficit of. Over one hundred and sixty million dollars, but by contrast, other universities like Monash finishing with a very healthy surplus, so I think the sector's all over the place a bit in terms of how it weathered last year. Um, but the the more important question, I think, is how the sector's going to weather this year and next, um, and that's where I think it starts to become quite worrying. Um, universities were able to move pretty quickly last year to contain costs in the light of a downturn in revenue um, <clears throat> and they, they did a lot of things that you can't really continue to do so putting capital expenditure on hold for example or freezing all expenditure on travel um, recruitment freezes all of those sorts of things um, it's going to get much harder from here on um, because the the saving in order to make savings now you, you you're going to have to dig into the to the, the muscle and bone of an institution. Um, and that's the worry, I think, is that um, the longer borders remain closed, um, the, and the, the, the longer the decline in international student enrollments continues, then the worse the, the position gets for the sector. Some people are saying, uh, some media commentators are saying that universities were crying wolf, given um, the outcome of last year's uh, finances, but. I don't think they are. I really don't think they are. I think, um, you know, th- this year we're going to start seeing quite a different picture.
0: Yeah. Would your view be given given what you just said about that massive variation between, say, for example, ANU and and Monash? You know, one one being in surplus and and you know, I I I'm sort of frightened to ask how they achieved that because I'm sure you know a lot of staff losses were in, were involved and and ANU by contrast having a massive deficit generally the sector tends to go to government as a a group, you know, looking for support. Is this a scenario now where we we need a more nuanced approach, which is more, you know, institution by institution, or at least institutional type by institutional type? I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
5: Um, Look, universities are autonomous, you're right, and each faces unique circumstances. So it is hard to generalise, but I think there are some things on which it is possible to generalize across the sector and, and particularly to take to government um, the, the, the concerns we have about the future. I think the biggest concern, well, my biggest concern is the future of research funding um, in, across the sector. Universities contribute massively to the nation's research effort, um, but it, and over the last 20 or 30 years, Successive governments, and this isn't the fault of any single government, but successive governments have allowed the sector and indeed encouraged the sector to become more reliant on international student revenue as a source of cross-subsidy for research activity. Um, You know, you can see that in the way that the the money universities receive for research does not go anywhere close to covering the actual costs of conducting that research. Um, It's expected that universities will top it top up from somewhere. Now, historically, they've topped up from university, from international student fees, but we're not going to be able to do that, at least for the foreseeable future. So how are we going to sustain the world-class research system that we have embedded in our universities? That That's the really important question, I think, for the government. Um, and in this year's budget, they announced uh, a one-off $1 billion top-up to the research block grant, which was incredibly useful um, and you know helped to save a lot of jobs helped to, to maintain a lot of PhD scholarships you know all of those really important things that keep uh, the research system ticking over um, but it's it was a one-off it was a band-aid it doesn't address the long-term structural question of how are we going to fund research so for me it doesn't matter really uh, what the individual circumstances of a university are for the system as a whole. That seems to me to be one of the most pressing questions.
0: Yeah, John, I think I have a vague recollection of you and I and Glenn Davis writing documents to the government about this, trying to get that extra money for research to pay for it properly over 10, must have been 12 years ago now, and we're still, still having the same conversation. It,
5: exactly. It, so those sorts of dilemmas have been sort of glossed over by the flux of international student revenue, but we can't dodge it now, and we have to have a very serious... Conversation with government
0: about it. Yeah, John. Before we let you go, um, in terms of the the future out there at La Trobe, because that's where you know most of your, well, you know probably uh, the lion's share of your work is done. Um, what does it look like for La Trobe coming up? I mean, typically when we have these big uh, impacts happening in society, there tends to be a rush of people back into the tertiary sector. The you know in, in a way sort of bunker down a bit, do some more education. You know, Im- improve their their possibilities coming out. Are you seeing that? And what what other things are happening out at La Trobe that um, are big over the next couple of years? Given, I mean, given the the whole situation's in in flux.
5: Yeah, so we are seeing that, Shane. We are seeing a, a, a real spike in domestic demand, particularly for postgraduate mm-hmm. courses and for short courses. Um, where so, and that makes sense. You know, people recognizing that they need to upskill or change direction in their careers, so they need a quick top up, either a, you know a short uh, two- or three-day course or a, a one-year or two-year postgraduate qualification. So that, there's de- that is definitely happening. Um, we're, we're also seeing a lot of interest um, from industry to work more closely with us. Um, the, the state government recently announced um, funding for a bio-innovation hub at the Trobe, which is essentially a place where small to medium-sized businesses can come and um, rent wet lab space, which is very hard to find in Melbourne. Um, so that they can just get their own businesses off the ground, we have been absolutely inundated mm. with demand for that space. We could probably fill the space that the state government's paying for about five times over. Um, so there, this pandemic shade is really odd. You know, there are, it, it's it's awful in so many ways, but um, it's really shifting uh, a lot of things much faster than might otherwise have taken you know maybe a decade we're seeing things shift in you know a matter of months it's it's away but um so yeah things are looking really exciting in that regard but we still have this revenue problem like Mm -hmm. every university um that we're going to have to address and we we did a lot of work last year to address that but there's still more to be done um, but uh, yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy year for anyone. But yeah. Nevertheless, some exciting things happening.
0: Yep. Well, John, look, thanks so much for chatting to us today. I know um, I know it's a, you've got a big big job there with Universities Australia, and congratulations again on that. I know Latrobe mm-hmm. has been you know doing some great things um, over the last few years, and that's been you know transformational. I've spent Many, there was a time when you could look at the uh, the backseat of my old XD Ford and there would be about 20 or 25 Latrobe parking passes in there from visiting uh, researchers in the School of Electronic and Electrical Engineering. Um, that was a reflection more on me cleaning my car than how often I was there. But um, there's some great stuff going on out there. And thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with the, the, the coming year. It's going to be a, a, a tough gig, but um, I think there's um, there's some good things by the sounds of things happening there in your neck That's of the woods.
5: Absolutely. And you're welcome back any time. It is a great place. It's a very friendly, warm place with a lot of really good stuff going on. Sounds good, John.
0: Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.
5: No worries. Thanks,
0: Shane. Folks, that was Professor John Dewar, the um, Vice-Chancellor of La Trobe University and also the new Chair of Universities Australia. We're going to take a, a break, Dr. Laura. Laura's still in the studio. I almost forgot you were there for a second. It's a bit weird. I left your microphone on and all. And yeah, I'm just,
3: it, hanging just hanging out. Just hanging out.
0: hanging <laughs> out. Come back in a minute. I'm going to have a bit of a rant about vaccines. So uh, strap yourselves in, people. It could get nasty. You never know. I'm in a bit of a mood today. Um, but I'm in a good mood, actually, because I've got people in the studio with me. Uh, here's an important station announcement.
6: Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR.
0: Uh, we're back folks uh, You are listening to Einstein and go Thank you to Neil deGrasse Tyson Just for uh, chucking in his voice uh, Now, importantly I wanted to make mention of A very big loss to the world this week That you may or may not have heard of Which was a gentleman named Michael Collins Now, if that name doesn't mean anything to you That's not overly surprising Because he wasn't um, someone that many people Would recognise when we speak about him But um, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin First walked on the moon for Apollo 11 there was some poor dude up in the command module waiting to collect them after they'd done it and that gentleman's name was Michael Collins and unfortunately he died this week um, at a very very good age uh, of 90ish I think and I just wanted to sort of mention that he he did some amazing things actually he um, was also on one of the earlier programs he went into space twice he was on the Gemini 10 uh, flight which was one of the first orbital docking testing flights where they were trying to work out whether they could dock two spacecraft, which was pretty cool. He was the fourth person, third American, fourth person in the world to actually do uh, a spacewalk. So pretty cool. Um, And uh, he did, now this also may surprise you, how many times do you think he went around the moon, Dr. Laura?
3: Well... This is the first time I've actually heard of Michael Collins. Yeah. I feel bad about that because it's quite um, common.
0: Quite common. Um, how many bad. times
3: around the moon? Oh, no idea. I can't place that.
0: Well, while Neil and Buzz were wandering around, yeah. he went around the the moon thirty times. Oh, I so, was going to go for something like three. Yeah, so. and, and that's quite that's quite, um, quite common. For people to think that, um, but but actually they were there for a while, and he went around thirty times, which is pretty cool. And one of the coolest things is where he was born. Just like it? take a guess as to where he was born.
3: He's not Australian, is he?
0: No. <laughs> No, much cooler, much, <laughs> much cooler. cooler. Sorry, sorry to all of Australia for saying that. He was born in Rome, Italy.
4: Oh, really?
3: Um,
0: because so- his father was in the military, and you know they just moved around a lot, and he just happened to be born in Rome, Italy. So, um, but spent a lot of time in, in in the US, of course, and became one of their, their greatest astronauts. So, anyway, I thought that was very sad. He he's had a great life beyond his time um, with the moon moon landings, but he was lost uh, this week, so that was a little bit little bit sad. So farewell to to Michael Collins, and um, yeah. Great guy. Anyway, now, I wanted to talk uh, briefly in the last few minutes about um, COVID-19 vaccines because I have to say, Dr. Laura, I am sick and tired of reading crap in the media about these things and the misinformation that's coming out is really scaring the crap out oh, of a lot of people.
3: You've been... been
0: vaccinated, right? I have. It's the only reason I let you in. <laughs> it's, uh, now, look, it's, it's interesting at the moment, folks. There seem, there's a lot of fear out there in the community and a lot of this is being driven primarily by the media at the moment and the way in which they're reporting all of the bad things and none of the good things. So to give you an example, earlier in the week, there was a headline in The Age, this was on Thursday, and the headline read, two New South Wales men die after receiving AstraZeneca COVID vaccines. Ouch. Now, if you read that and you don't read on, that's damn scary stuff. And I really have a lot of sympathy for people who are reading that and then being concerned. Of course, the next line, if you read the fine print, said health authorities are reviewing the cases, but a clear link between their deaths and the vaccine is yet to be established.
3: That's terrible.
0: Now, I'd kind of reverse those. You know, If you yeah. want to put them out, just reverse those. So.
3: But- People yeah. want to sell newspapers. They want. They newspapers. want. They want more clicks. Yeah. What now,
0: likes? it's interesting to me because um, some people may have heard me tell this story in the past, but there was an event in L'Aquila in Italy um, some years ago now. I think it was 2008, where a group of seismologists and one one government official put out a statement indicating that there was no essentially no chance of an earthquake happening the following day. A big one happened that night and 328 odd people or something died and about 29 of them did something very different that night compared to their lifetime of training um, because of the information that was put out by the scientists and this government official. Now I, I put a lot of the weight on the government official but suffice it to say they all went to jail for manslaughter. They were there for about two years finally released. This was a Big deal at the time, but it was because people changed their behaviour based on scientific communication. Now, at the moment, and I'm not saying we should put all our journalists in jail, but people are changing their behaviour towards vaccination as a result of these types of headlines, and that is problematic, and it's got to stop. And I've been calling this out a lot on Twitter, but... You know, just don't read these headlines, folks. They're not good sources of information. Um, Also, there's a lot of information coming out of health experts that is not helpful. Um, For example, I find it really hard looking at some of the statistics around, you know, risk. And all those things are individual risks. So what is your risk, Laura, of getting this complication if you get the vaccine? What they don't take into account is the risk that you put other people under if you don't get vaccinated. That's a really big problem because your risk of being really sick from this virus is relatively low. But if you pass it on to someone who is more susceptible... Then their risk of, of dying is very, very high. And so it can't just be about individual risk. It's got to be about a community of risk.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And also, even the individual risk, it's just, um, you know, it's it, compare it to the risk, you know, the blood cops' risks of a long haul flight. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's crazy, like, you know, the way they're, like, jumping on these individual risks.
0: And and we know that the information put out by, you know, medical research as a whole over the years has destroyed our capability to assess this risk. So how many times have we done stories on this show where someone said, oh, you know, if you drink this number of coffees, there's an increased risk of this. It's like increased relative to what? How do I make that determination? I've heard so many medical stories about that where, frankly, it's researchers doing good 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 work but for some reason just chasing news articles and that is not helpful to the consumer and consumers have trouble determining what's real risk and what's not as a result. I'm pretty sure there's a risk that you might strangle yourself with your seatbelt but it's not (laughs) going to stop me wearing it but if that was the first thing someone told me when I bought a car would have a very different view of it. In fact, if you went and bought a car and they told you all the risks of having a car, which are actually quite high, um, you'd you'd probably never bloody get in a car again.
3: That's a great way of thinking about it.
0: Can you imagine the airline safety demonstration when you first get on a plane? I'm someone who's a little anxious about flying. I would be getting off if they actually went through all the risks and gave me the percentages. It's not the way to communicate this information to the public, especially at a time when this matters. Um, I think a lot of people have questions and the, the the standard reference here is you know talk to your gp well i have to say i feel a huge amount of sympathy for gps they have barely 15 minutes to see both um, most patients and when you come in with complex conditions and you want to know how your medications for those conditions interact with these vaccines gps are really pushed to try and provide you know what what becomes informed decision information with those patients so it's tricky it's really hard and the more we put this stuff on the front pages of the newspaper about you know all these terrible things happening the more we scare people off we've been getting the flu injection and other vaccines with risks like this for decades but we don't put it in the news um if if we recorded on the front page of the age or the herald sun or the australian every time someone died as a result directly of an anesthetic There'd be nothing else in the newspaper. These things come with risks, but we accept them because the outcomes are worth it. So it's one thing that I I get on my high horse about this, Doctor Laura, because I think you
3: absolutely it should. It
0: is it is really problematic. The other thing is the um the the way in which we respond to vaccines is different for everyone. So I had to talk my parents, both my parents, I talked them into getting the Astrazeneca vaccine. Um, so you know, money where my mouth is. I think this is a wise move. And I told my dad, I said, look, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but you're going to have to look after Mum because she's younger than you and she's healthier. And her response. From her immune system will probably be stronger and she'll get a, the, the side effects for her will be more powerful. And exactly, exactly that happened. Yeah, mum was a bit, bit rough around the edges after the first shot. Um, dad was like, eh, nothing happened. Yeah, <laughs> no big deal, which means his immune response wasn't as strong.
3: Yeah, I was excited as an immunologist. I got the. Um AstraZeneca vaccine a few weeks ago, and, I, and at night I did feel I was like, "Oh, hello, immune response live in action in my body," <laughs> as I could feel, you know, a bit of fever and like I. It was um, a signal that my immune response works, and that was very exciting.
0: Yeah, look, the other thing I'd mention there is there are so many people around, and this is not a small number, who for whatever reason cannot get vaccinated, or the vaccinations don't work as effectively on them, and that that's true for many of our elderly citizens, but also some of our long-term listeners will remember every year we have uh, little May who started coming on the show when she was five she's now seven and her mother louise who both have primary immunodeficiency disorder and they cannot get vaccinated um little may has been wearing masks you know most of her life and you know she's such a poster child now literally for um for people wearing masks during the COVID lockdown but it's something that you know we need to protect them this is part of our community duty. it is not just about us individually it's part of being a community and if you're in one of those situations or you are going through chemotherapy or anything like that and you're unable to get vaccinated you would be begging for those around you to help out by doing that so i think it's really important for people to assess their own their own risk with their medical professionals as much as possible but please steer away from these newspaper headlines that are nothing but fear mongering and, and they they say it's informing the public. Well, the one I just read out does not inform the public. It scares the crap out of the public with no necessary need. So um there we go. Bravo my Shane. my Very little high well horse. Said. Um, it's really important that we do this, and things are getting um, getting tough. I, I uh, spoke to uh, Kylie Quinn from um, uh, RMIT University on Friday at an immunology event that I emceed, and she gave a great piece of advice. And she said the right vaccine for you is the first one you're offered. And I think that's a good piece of advice at yep. the moment because um, this is something very important. We're in a lull, Melbourne. We're in a lull and that might go away. Anyway, we better hand over to the team from Edith. Thank you very much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thank you, Dr. Laura, for being in the studio.
3: Absolute pleasure, Dr. Shane.
0: Great to see you. Thanks to all our guests today. Have a great Sunday. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And we'll chat to you next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo. A weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.